Sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. Some of you know it, right? All men joys got nuts. Mounds don't. There you go. From the 1980s like me, you remember this, right? There it is. And I promise I'm not just singing for your amusement. This really does relate. Uh, this morning, we are looking at Numbers chapter 17 um, on Aaron's omens. And if you're not familiar with the event that's recorded in this chapter, it will all make sense shortly. This year, we are walking through uh, the book of Numbers, that fourth book of the Bible, most commonly called the book of Numbers because of the census numbers uh, that are given uh, for the nation of Israel when they were in the desert, having been delivered from slavery uh, in Egypt and heading towards the promised land. Numbers is actually the title that's given by the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Hebrew title of the book is Bemidbar, which means in the wilderness. A much more appropriate title to the content of the book and immediately shows that it is a much more relevant book to us who are also living in the wilderness, having been delivered from slavery to sin and we are traveling to the eternal promised land of the new heavens and new earth. The events of Bemidbar in the book of Numbers are true. These events really did happen. The written record was originally for the second generation of Israelites in the wilderness, that is, those that lived for 40 years in the desert wilderness and who would eventually inherit the promised land. And so for us to have a correct interpretation and application of these events, we must first understand the original interpretation and application and then see its fulfillment through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in order to do any of that, we need God's help. And God is pleased to send the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the reading and preaching of the word when we ask. So before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for precisely that. O God of Revelation, you are a God who is not silent, but a God who speaks and who has spoken in abundance. And so it is, we are glad to have this opportunity to hear you speak again that we might hear you speak and to know that this word is your word, we ask that you would now send your Holy Spirit to bear witness with our minds, our hearts, our souls, our whole selves, that we might receive this word as your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher who is most certainly not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, many of the chapters of the book of Numbers that we've seen so far have been rather long as they give a full narrative account with important details. Numbers chapter 17 is short. In fact, it is the shortest chapter in this book. And because at least one of you will fact check me on this one, yes, the last chapter is the same number of verses, but this one has a hundred less words. Okay, there you go. So, listen to God's word, written, preserved, and now read from Numbers chapter 17. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and get 12 staffs from them, one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. Write the name of each man on his staff. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name, for there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. Place them in the tent of meeting 
in front of the testimony where I meet with you. The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout, and I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. So Moses spoke to the Israelites, and their leaders gave him 12 staffs, one for the leader of each of their ancestral tribes, and Aaron's staff was among them. Moses placed the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. The next day, Moses entered the tent of the testimony and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the house of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites. They looked at them, and each man took his own staff. The Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. The Israelites said to Moses, we will die. We are lost. We are all lost. Anyone who even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Are we all going to die? Well, the first seven verses tell us about the 13 staffs. The Lord tells Moses to get 12 staffs, one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. And the the Hebrew word for staff and the Hebrew word for tribe are essentially the same Hebrew word and drives home the point that each staff represented the tribe. And so the name of the tribal leader was written on the staff so it was clear whose staff belonged to who. And they are placed in the Holy of Holies, the very place where God condescended to meet with his people. Only Moses and Aaron could enter the Holy of Holies without immediately dying. And they would see the glory cloud, the manifestation of God that would come down and hover over the Ark of the Covenant. And they would hear the voice of the Lord speaking. And so the fact that these staffs were going into the Holy of Holies shows the solemnity and seriousness of the event. These staffs going into the very presence of God. Yes, God is present everywhere, but there are those moments when God is present in a significant way in which he is revealing himself. When God appeared in the burning bush to Moses, he said, "Uh, remove your sandals for the ground you are standing on is holy ground. 30 seconds earlier, it was not holy ground. And 30 seconds after God's appearing, it would no longer be holy ground. It was holy in that moment because God was particularly present. And so there's those 12 staffs, but one more staff needs to be added. The 12 staffs represent the 12 tribes, but there is a 13th tribe, the 13th staff added for the priestly tribe of Levi. Verse 3, on the staff of Levi write Aaron's name, for there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. So the 13th staff for the 13th tribe of Levi, who separated out from all the other tribes. In fact, you might recall that again, is the tabernacle at the center of the community, that sort of sense of God at the center, Christ at the center, and the 12 tribes camped around the tabernacle. But in between the tabernacle and the camping of the 12 tribes was this 13th tribe, the priests who served permanently as mediators between God and his people. And Aaron, as the high priest, is uh, the, uh, the most representative of that and the one that would actually enter into the Holy of Holies and foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is the final 
an eternal high priest. And so we want to keep seeing Jesus in all of this. So what's the purpose of this event? Well, God is revealing that he has chosen Aaron as his high priest, but he's trying to do something else. Verse 5, the staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout and I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. Lots of grumbling that keeps coming against Moses and Aaron. Chapter 16 that we just saw detailed the grumbling rebellion of 250 priests against the high priest. And then a mass rebellion by the whole community that left 17,500 dead along with the original 250. Chapter 14 previously detailed the grumbling and a rebellion by the community that resulted in Israel being uh, uh, in the desert, stuck in the desert for 40 years and a whole generation that would die in the desert and never see the promised land. Before that, chapter 12, detailed grumbling and opposition by Miriam. Before that, chapter 11, detailed grumbling led by the rabble. So the Lord is trying to put an end to the grumbling. The Lord is bringing Israel to the promised land, despite their best efforts to keep it from happening. Their grumbling does nothing but cause them increasing hardship. And is that not the same for us? Grumbling crumbs from hearts that are in a condition of sin and misery. The Lord continually does a redeeming work to change our hearts from that natural condition of sin and misery, conquering us that we might enter into a new condition of holiness and happiness. So the Lord so far has been rightly reactive to the grumbling that has taken place on these occasions. The Lord is now being proactive, demonstrating that he has chosen Aaron as the high priest so that the people would stop opposing and grumbling against Aaron and Moses. Spoiler alert, it does not put an end to the grumbling. (laughs) But there can be no doubt that the Lord has made his will clear and that our natural heart continually chooses sin and misery. But God's persevering grace continually does a redeeming work to conquer us for our own benefits. And so from the 13 staffs, Uh, Beginning at verse 8, and now with a nod toward Lord of the Rings, we have one staff to rule them all. Verse 8, the next day Moses entered the tent of the testimony and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the house of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. That's nuts. Sorry. God is clearly showing that his choice of Aaron as high priest, only Aaron can draw near to God and make atonement for sin on behalf of Israel. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Aaron's staff got nuts, yours don't. The role of the high priest was to make the atoning sacrifice to make the blood sacrifice that would allow people to live. And so there's always been that within the redemptive history is that life comes from death. And so here we have the vivid uh, illustration of that, a wooden staff, a dead branch, so dead that it's now been turned into a staff. It's completely dead. And suddenly and miraculously, it sprouts, buds, blossoms, and produces. Now, right now here in Western Pennsylvania, we're in 
uh, springtime and we see some flowers that seem to grow really fast and weeds that grow even faster. But even a seedling doesn't produce fruit the next day. Certainly not a dead plant or a dead branch that has fallen to the ground and been buffed down to become a staff. So why almonds of all things? If you get a bag of mixed nuts, these are the ones that like you sort through and save for last or give to a friend or something, right? You, you don't want the mixed nut, you want all the other stuff first. I remember that whenever I get mixed nuts, these are the ones that you left behind. So why, why nuts? Well, again, the original witnesses of this event understand and apply this event because they understood. Where else do we find a miniature tree with almond flowers and buds? And you really got to be a Bible scholar to pick up on this. It's the lampstand. It's the lampstand that's in the tabernacle. Listen to this description from Exodus 25 that if you've read Exodus before, you probably gloss over this because it all seems to run together and can't remember all these details. But here's the lampstand. Make a lampstand of pure gold, hammer out its base and shaft, and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side, three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch. And the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. On the lampstand, there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. The whole lampstand is a miniature almond tree. The symbolic function of the lampstand was to shine the light of God's favor on the table containing the 12 loaves of showbread. God's favor and blessing resting on the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the lampstand is an almond tree. In fact, the Hebrew word for almond, uh, uh, as the noun is related to the verb to watch. The Lord watches over his people for blessing both now and in greater measure in the future. Almonds bring joy. See what I did there? The light of God's favor is made possible by the atoning sacrifice presented by the high priest. And so verse 10 reads, put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. The staff is there as a permanent reminder of the sacrifice of the high priest. And because of that sacrifice, pours out the blessing. The staff is there as a permanent visual reminder that the priesthood of Aaron, Aaron himself, and then his descendants are the only legitimate priesthood. That God has provided the Aaronic priesthood as the mediator to draw near to God and present the atoning sacrifice for God's people. Jesus Christ has now come, and he is now the permanent and eternal high priest. And the cross is a sort of visual reminder that Jesus is the only mediator between God and his people. He has made the full and final atonement in the sacrifice of himself. We've read that again and again in Hebrews 9. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus Christ has appeared once for all 
at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And earlier in the service, we affirmed this truth in the summary of the Westminster Confession of Faith about Christ as mediator. We said the Lord Jesus, by his perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for those whom the Father has given unto him. And although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed. And so we have these types, these prefigurings, these things that have taken place in order to foreshadow the work that Christ would fulfill. For us... Jesus accomplished atonement 2,000 years in the past. But for the Israelites, the benefits of the future atonement were already being received in the wilderness. For Israel, Aaron's almonds were a present blessing because of what Jesus Christ would accomplish 1,500 years in their future. And so Hebrews 9 verse 4 even reminds us that in the most holy place, in that holy of holies, was Aaron's staff that had budded. And then Christ came as high priest as the fulfillment of all that's prefigured by Aaron. And so when somebody wants to suggest that someone else or something else can be a mediator, that there's another way besides Jesus, they're committing the same rebellion that Israel did that left them dead in the desert. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's good news. We don't need to invent another way. There is only despair in other ways. The good news is that the way has already been given. And so from the 13 staffs and the one staff to rule them all, the last two verses show us the connection between holiness and happiness. The people were firmly convinced that God had done this thing. But their response in verse 12 then seems curious. We will die. We are lost. We are all lost. Well, coming into God's presence and being firmly convinced that God is present and doing this thing we become immensely aware of his holiness and thus our unholiness. That's always the case. Throughout redemptive history, whenever somebody comes into God's presence, they are aware of their own unholiness and are sure they're gonna die. Even uh, when Jesus came, there were particular times that people became aware that Jesus was God in the flesh and standing in their very presence. One of my favorite accounts of that is when uh, they were fishing and the strangest response to catching fish. The account is in the Gospel of Luke that says uh, uh, Jesus had been speaking and he said to Simon Peter, go out and put your uh, nets down into the deep for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and caught nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, so large their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners and the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both their boats so that the boats began to sink. And having caught so many fish, what does Simon Peter say? He falls down at Jesus' feet and says, 
depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Aware that he was in the presence of God himself, his response to a great catch of fish was realization that he was in God's presence and aware of his own sinfulness. It's reminiscent of the prophet Isaiah who had a divine vision of the Lord on his throne and his response to that divine vision was, woe to me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. As my friend says, if you've ever stood before the holy God and felt like anything but a peon, you were standing before an idol. And so when people talk about having a spiritual experience, it's usually an account of getting the ooey-gooeys, a feel-good experience. Throughout scripture, anytime someone had a genuine spiritual experience, a manifestation of the divine, even an angelic messenger, their reaction was not ooey-gooeys, their reaction was to wet their pants in fear. They thought they were going to die, overwhelmed by their unholiness and falling on their faces in reverent fear of the holy God. And so it is quite a shame that too many churches today have chosen instead to utilize emotional manipulation, either to manipulate, manipulate guilt or to manipulate ooey-gooeys. Either way, it's emotional manipulation and not a spiritual experience. Genuine guilt comes from God's holy presence, not guilt-mongering. Real forgiveness comes from God's mercy, not emotional manipulation. Let me say that again. Genuine guilt comes from God's presence, not guilt-mongering. Real forgiveness comes from God's mercy, not emotional manipulation. Aaron's almonds bring joy. The mounds of guilt mongering and emotional game playing don't. Jesus Christ's once for all atonement brings joy. God produced holiness, brings God produced happiness, joy now and forever. May that truth set us free for holiness and happiness. Amen.